I'm sure there's probably a good chance that you've at one point or another had it go through your mind or maybe you said it to someone else. It's crossed your lips. You are looking at what is ahead of you and you just think to yourself or say to another, the obstacles before me, they are just too great. There's no way that we can get through this situation that is before us. That was absolutely the thought when Israel was under the thumb, if you will, of Pharaoh in Egypt. They were in bondage as slaves for 400 years. They were being commanded to commit infanticide upon their newborn sons. And in the midst of that, God delivered them by his power and by his great strength. But then immediately, as you follow the story in the book of Exodus, immediately after Israel goes through the, the Passover experience, they, they observe the very first Passover meal and then they're released from Egypt. They gather all the people and all the goods and they start going towards the wilderness. Immediately after their exodus from Egypt, they find themselves again in what seems to be an impassable situation. To their left and to their right, they have two mountains. Their names of the mountains are even given in the text of the book of Exodus. The names of the mountains are Piahiroth and Migdal. And then in front of them is the Red Sea. And behind them is the pursuing Egyptian army. And in the midst of this, God speaks to the people and he says to them, it's recorded in Exodus chapter 14. God says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see no more again forever. The Lord will fight for you and you will hold your peace. And then Moses, he receives a word from the Lord. God speaks directly to Moses after he's spoken the word of God to the people. And God says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the children of Israel to move out, go forward. And he tells him to go and lift up the rod that he had in his hand and stretch it out over the sea, the Red Sea, and to divide it. And that the children of Israel would go over on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Perhaps one of the most awe-inspiring and amazing miracles ever mentioned in the scriptures. One that causes skeptics to just explode. But this is what the text of scripture reveals. Over and over again, Israel is faced with insurmountable obstacles and barriers, especially as they are in that wilderness wandering experience, whether it was a lack of water or it was the want for food, or it was when they come in contact with enemies and foes that are stronger than them, or when the fiery serpents, the venomous snakes come into the camp. At every point, by their own strength and their own strategies and plans, they were completely without hope. There was nothing that they could do in their own strength. The obstacles before them were far too great. There was no way for them to be able to cross those things apart from God. Now, the question does come, did God orchestrate the circumstances to bring them to that point? The point where they were out of options beyond turning to the Lord. Maybe that's possible. I mean, you could make the case that that is possible. Or possibly it was just the reality of life in a broken world, or maybe it was just the fact that the enemy does exist. The enemy of God comes against us. Whatever the case, time and time again, Israel found themselves in what you would probably consider to be hopeless circumstances. Those kind of hopeless circumstances, they remind me of a passage of scripture from 
the Psalms in Psalm 107, great passage of scripture. We read this in verse 23. Those who go down to the sea and ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep for he commands and raises the stormy wind. In this instance here, God is the one who's bringing the storm. He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men and are at their wits end. Maybe some of you have been in a situation like that where you're actually on a boat in the sea and the waves are just rolling and you find yourself tempest tossed, as we'd say. And here these guys are trying to find a way to get out of that storm and out of that troubling situation. And they are at their wits end. And then it says in verse 28, then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. And then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Great passage of scripture. They are at their wits end. And when they are at their wits end, when they finally come to that place where they are completely out of options, there's nothing they can do to get out of this storm or circumstance or situation or whatever it is, there's nothing they can do in their own strength or by their own strategies to get out of it. It is at that point, then they cry out to the Lord. Now I've discovered, and maybe you've discovered as well, this is a difficult lesson to learn, but it is one that I have observed frequently. And that is that the greatness of God's power and glory is seen most clearly when we are at our weakest. It is when we are weak that his strength is made perfect. The apostle Paul learned this and he writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul had some sort of infirmity, some sort of problem. There's all, signed of, all kinds of speculation about exactly what that is. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. But it was in the midst of that thorn in the flesh, after he had prayed three times to God to take it away and God did not take it away, it was there that he learned this valuable lesson. When I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness in ourselves oftentimes promotes reliance upon God. Three times in Joshua chapter one, which is what we looked at a few weeks ago here at Cross Connection Church, but three times in Joshua chapter one, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Now, who do you speak words of encouraging strength to, but to the one who is lacking courage and strength? And where was it that strength and courage were going to come from for Joshua? Was it in Joshua's strategy as he brings the children of Israel into the promised land? Was it from a battled, hardened, and well-trained military or army? Was it from the abundance of the swords and shields and bows and chariots that Joshua and Israel possessed? Was it from the vastness of his horses and his foot soldiers and his archers? I mean, if that was multiple choice, you'd have to choose none of the above. There's, there's no way that those are the things that he was trusting in. So God tells him to be strong and of good courage, but where is this courage going to come from? Well, the answer we find there in Joshua chapter one, we read from verse two, now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, God says to Joshua, and you and all this people to the land, which I am giving to them, to the children of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I said to Moses, verse five, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Have I not commanded you, verse 9, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
clearly from that text, as God says to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. And as he no doubt relays that message to the people, the children of Israel, clearly the source of Joshua's and Israel's strength was the greatness of God and his promise. God says, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. I am the one who's giving you this land. So the source of Joshua's strength was the greatness of God and his promise. And th this is key. Joshua and Israel's trust and faith in God and their faithfulness to his word, those things were going to be the very things that were going to sustain them and cause them to be victorious as they come into the land. God asks, do you trust me? He says that to Joshua and to the children of Israel. And he says that to you right now, wherever you are at, at this moment, do you trust me? Says the Lord. God's command was arise and go over the Jordan. You and all of this people there in that passage. And so what was Josh's response there in that passage? Verse 10 says, then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves for within three days, you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land, which the Lord God is giving you to possess. Joshua, after that point, after he tells them to get ready, we're going into the land, he sends two spies into Jericho. We considered that in our study last time. And those two spies, they re return back from Jericho with the report from Rahab, the harlot there in that city, saying, truly the Lord God has delivered this land into our hand. Indeed, everybody that lives in the land of Canaan is dreadfully afraid, faint-hearted because of us. And that brings us to the passage that we are in today. Joshua chapter three, verse one, it says, then Joshua arose early in the morning and they, the people of Israel with Joshua set out from Acacia Grove or Shittim and they came to the Jordan river, he and all the children of the Israel and they lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God and the priests, the Levites bearing it, carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Note what happens here in the pace of this story. He says to the people after receiving the encouragement of God in chapter one, he says to the people, prepare provisions because three days we're going into the promised land. He sends in some spies who come back. They give him the report. Hey, everybody in the land is scared to death of us. It's time for us to go. And immediately Joshua rose early in the morning the next day. He and all of the people, they broke camp and they moved right up to the edge of the Jordan River. If ever they were close, now they are closer than ever. They are at the border of blessing. And the leaders of Israel, they go and they tell the people, be ready to move. And what was going to be the indication that it was time to move? What were they to be looking for? He says, when you see, or the people tell, the, the leaders tell the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests, the Levites carrying it, then you shall go out from your place and go after it, follow the Ark. Now that brings up the question, what is this Ark of the Covenant? Well, if you go through the scriptures, especially the book of Exodus after chapter 20 until the end of the book of Exodus, you have God instructing Moses and the children of Israel 40 years prior to these events to construct the tabernacle where they would meet with God and offer worship and offerings to God and receive God's word to them. But there in the tabernacle was a holy place and then a most holy place. And inside the most holy place was this two foot by three foot wooden box that was overlaid with gold. And it was covered with a cover over the top of it 
over which stood two angelic castings with their wings outstretched over the top. Inside the box were the tablets of stone upon which were the Ten Commandments that Moses had received from the Lord. That's the first thing that was in the box. The second thing that was in the box was a clay container or jar with manna inside of it. That was the food that the children of Israel ate for the 40 years that they were in the wilderness. That manna is about to stop, but there was manna inside of the Ark of the Covenant. The third thing that was in there was the staff, the wooden staff of Aaron that in one of the stories in the book of Numbers, interesting thing, it budded there in that passage. You can read about it later. But those were the three things inside of this box. But it wasn't what was inside the box and it wasn't the box itself that was important. It is what the box represented for the children of Israel. You see on top of this, this golden box, two foot by three foot, was a top, the outstretched wings of the angels over it, but that area on top was called the mercy seat. And it was there upon the mercy seat that God's presence was manifested to the children of Israel. So the ark represented the manifest presence of God. And so the picture here in this story, as the children of Israel are leaving Shittim and they are coming to the Jordan River and they are preparing to cross over the Jordan River to come into the promised land, the picture is clear. God is going before his people. They were to follow him. They were to be ready to go wherever he would guide and lead them. God's victorious strength is witnessed by those that are ready to follow him. Such an important truth. If you want to see God's victorious strength in your life, at your, in working out through your life, then you need to be ready to follow him wherever he will lead you to go. And looking at this whole situation, talk about a step of faith. When you see the Ark of the Covenant, and you see the priests carrying it, then you are to set out from your place and go after it. Throughout all of their wanderings in the wilderness, throughout the last 38 years of them wandering in the wilderness, Israel did not move until God moved. 38 years prior, almost to the day, 38 years prior to this event of the children of Israel leaving the you know, Acacia Grove and going to the Jordan. 38 years prior to this, we find this in the book of Numbers, chapter 9. We read, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. This was when the children of Israel were still at Mount Sinai, after they had received the law, after they had entered into the covenant, after they had built the tabernacle, after God came and dwelt in the tabernacle, his presence seen by this cloud that covered it. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, let the children of Israel keep the Passover. So they kept the Passover right before they came out of Egypt. Now they keep the Passover again at Sinai, just before they are about to set out to go towards the promised land, 38 years before what we have here in Joshua chapter three. So let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time, which was on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. It says there on the 14th day of this month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. So this was in roughly our month of the end of March and in beginning of April. Sometime around there is when Nisan comes and Passover comes. Passover is about ready to come here very, very soon. It's right around our Easter when we celebrate the resurrection. So 
he says, you're going to celebrate the Passover. This is the second time that they celebrate the Passover after they came out of Egypt and their bondage there. They're at Mount Sinai. They're the covenant of the people of God. And so God says, tell the children of Israel to celebrate the Passover. Then immediately after they partook of the Passover, exactly two years after leaving Egypt, Numbers chapter 9 continues. Look at this. This is so important. Now on the day, verse 15, now on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, this is when they first constructed and built the tabernacle. You can read about it in the last couple chapters of the book of Exodus. The cloud covered the tabernacle. So God's manifest presence came and covered the tabernacle. The tent of the testimony from evening until morning, it was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. So a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of uh, fire by night. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, after that, the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. So come back here for a moment. Interesting thing here. Moses is telling us here in Numbers that when they built the tabernacle at Sinai, God's presence showed up in the pillar of cloud that came and covered the tabernacle. And then by night, it would look like a pillar of fire. And then now he says, whenever the cloud would leave the tabernacle and move, the children of Israel would break camp and they would start to follow after the cloud. And then wherever the cloud would settle, they would set up camp and they would stay there. So going on, at the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. So the command of the Lord was the moving of the cloud. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. Even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. So it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey, whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, a year, that the cloud would remain above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. At the command of the Lord, they remained encamped. At the command of the Lord, they journeyed and they kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. This just goes back in a cycle, back and forth here in this passage in Numbers chapter nine. But it's really, really important. The children of Israel were guided and led through their journeys in the wilderness by God, commanding them where they would go by the appearance of this cloud that would settle in one place and they would put the tabernacle there and they would build camp. And then when the cloud would go and move, they would go and move. And sometimes it would stay there for a day, sometimes a week, sometimes a year, it would stay in the same place. Through, throughout all of their journeys for 38 years, God has been the one who has been guiding and directing the children of Israel. Israel has not moved until God has moved. All of this is completely by faith. They had to faithfully follow the pillar of cloud and fire, the manifest presence of almighty God. And I want to suggest to you that that call to follow by faith faithfully has not changed. You may not have a tabernacle and a cloud or a pillar of fire that guides and directs you, but just as the children of Israel had to follow God by faith, trusting that it was him who was leading and directing them, you and I have to follow God by faith as well. In fact, the New Testament author of the book of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe and trust that God is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God's victorious strength is witnessed by those that are ready to follow him by faith faithfully. And the children of Israel, they are ready to follow God by faith faithfully. 
But note this next verse in Joshua very well, because what we find here now is two, I think, extremely important truths for us to hold centrally in our minds and our hearts from this text about following God by faith. Because you and I have been called to a walk and life of faith if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian. And so we have some important truths here in this passage. The first one we've kind of already seen that we don't want to go anywhere unless it is the Lord who is directing us to go wherever he is directing us to go. But we've got a couple more important truths here in this passage. Look at verse 4, Joshua chapter 3. They're getting ready to follow. The people are told by their leaders that you are going to follow the ark wherever it goes. When you see the priest bearing the ark, you are to follow it, go after it. Yet, we see in verse 3, Joshua chapter 3, verse 4, I mean, yet there shall be a space between you and it, the ark, of about 2,000 cubits by measure. It's about a half mile. Do not come near to it. Don't get too close. Why? So that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. The New Testament says we walk by faith and not by sight in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And that is the only way to be pleasing to God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. To walk following him by faith faithfully. And yet here in this passage we are given another important thing that we need to hold on to. We need to make sure that as we are following God by faith, wherever he will guide and direct, we need to make sure that we are following him and not getting out in front of him. God wants to lead you into new paths. I believe that he has new things for, for you and for me. But we are certainly going to be always going into unmapped territory, into ways that we have not passed through before. Therefore, because that is true, it is essential that we follow God and we don't get out in front of God. For Israel, there was to be this space of about a half mile between them and the ark. This was both so that they could see where to go, they could see where the ark was going, but also that they might witness what God was doing. So note that they, they needed to be able to see where to go, where to follow to, but they also needed to be able to see what it was that God was doing. God's acts and his ways are only observed by those that follow and gaze upon him. So you've got to be at a distance following and focused, fixed upon him, watching to see what he will do. Now, I'm sure there are more than a few of you listening to this that have at one time or another gotten out ahead of God, maybe out of zeal, perhaps out of ignorance, just not paying attention. We all have at some point outpaced God a time or two. And when we do get out ahead of God, we often find ourselves in a place where we are very easily going to lose our way or get discouraged or be open target for the enemy or just make some foolish mistakes. When we get out ahead of God, we are exposed and we often end up not able to find our way. So we need to make sure that we, like the children of Israel, are following at a distance. We've got God in front of us and we're paying attention to where he is going and watching what he is doing. We see this idea of, of seeing God work come up a number of times in the Old Testament. In fact, we just looked at one a few minutes ago. You may have missed it in Exodus chapter 14. I'll mention it again in just a second. But in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel, who was a judge of Israel at that time, 
He says to the children of Israel, stand and see the great thing which the Lord God is going to do before your eyes. And then in another place in Second Chronicles, uh, a priest, um, Jehaziah, I believe it is, he, he said to Israel, to their king, Jehoshaphat, he says to them, as they are facing an imminent invasion from multiple enemies, he says, you will not need to fight this battle. Instead, position yourselves and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Very similar to the words that we saw in Exodus chapter 14. As the children of Israel were in that place where they're, you know, stuck between Pyahiroth and Migdol and Red Sea in front of them and the advancing Egyptian army behind them. And Moses said in Exodus chapter 14, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he has accomplished for you today. And I think that that's an important word for, for us as well, that there are times where we need to just plant ourselves and stop and watch and just wait upon the Lord. So I said there are two important truths that we find here in this passage that we need to keep in our minds as we're seeking to walk by faith and not by sight and follow God. The first one is that we need to follow God faithfully, but we should not get out ahead of him. We should wait upon the Lord. A beautiful passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 40 drives that home so clearly in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, where it says, but those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall rise up on wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So that's the first thing to keep in mind as you are seeking to follow God faithfully, follow at a distance, make sure he is out in front of you and that you are not getting ahead of him and wait upon the Lord. That's the proper place. So that's the first important truth we want to hold on to as we're thinking about following God by faith. Second important truth we find as we come here to verse 5 of Joshua chapter 3. It says, And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Very, very clearly right there in that single verse, God's wonders are seen by those that are set apart unto the Lord. You see that word sanctify, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. God's wonders are seen by those who are set apart unto the Lord. That's what sanctified means to be set apart. So simple question, do you want to see God's greatness and power and glory? Do you desire his victory in your life? Are you wanting to see God's acts and know his ways? Are the wonders of God a desire of yours. If you've said yes to any of those questions or all of those questions, then recognize that you need for his great power and glory to acknowledge your own weakness and your, your desperate need for his strength. We, we need to come to that humble place, uh, like Paul saying, I am weak. I don't have the, the strength or the strategy to be able to address all these things that are coming at me in my life. I need God's wisdom. I need God's grace. I've been reading this last week in Proverbs chapter 8 and Proverbs chapter 9, and it's all about seeking for wisdom. So in seeking for wisdom is the acknowledgement that I, I don't have the resources of strength, the resources of a plan to be able to address the various things that are coming at me as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a you know leader of an organization, as an individual involved in other organizations, whatever it may be, wherever you are at, you've got to come to the place of humble acknowledgement that you do not have in yourself the source of strength or strategy that's needed. You've got to acknowledge your weakness and your desperate need for God's strength because that promotes a reliance upon the Lord. If you want to see him work wonderfully in and through your life and bring victory and strength 
peace and rest and all of those things, ready yourself to follow him by faith. Position yourself, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Position yourself to see his glorious power and salvation. Set yourself apart, sanctify, consecrate yourself unto him alone. In another place in the Psalms, it says, commit your way to him. We're going to be looking at a passage having to do with Gilgal in just a couple of weeks in the book of Joshua. And there's an interesting situation that goes on in Gilgal. But the word Gilgal or the name Gilgal, it's committed to, connected to the word Gaal in Hebrew. And it's that word that is commit. It means to commit. It's a place of commitment. Commit your way to him and the Lord will direct your paths. So consecrate and sanctify yourself. That's the word that Moses gives to the children of Israel. Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now that begs the question, how do we sanctify ourselves? Well, I think first and foremost, we need to recognize that sanctification is a work of God's spirit. Sanctification is by the spirit as we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So God is the one who ultimately has the ability and power to bring about sanctifying work in our lives, cleansing, sanctifying, consecrating work in my life. But I think we should also recognize that Christ prayed in that great high priestly prayer. That's what it's called in John chapter 17. He prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word of God, the scriptures, has a sanctifying power. Ephesians chapter 5 drives this home as well. Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 25 that just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it so that he might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, by the washing of the water by the word. So the word of God sanctifies us. In Romans chapter 12, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may display or show in your life that good and perfect will of God. How do we renew our mind? Through the word of God sanctifying and cleansing us as it settles into our hearts and our minds. How shall a young man cleanse his ways, sanctify his ways? By taking heed to the word of God. So scripture reading and study and memorization and meditation are all important spiritual disciplines for growing in your sanctification. If you want to do what the scriptures say here, sanctify yourselves, consecrate yourselves to the Lord, commit yourself to him. If you wanna see his wonders and his work in your life, then you need to Establish the spiritual discipline of reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures and memorizing the scriptures and meditating upon the scriptures. So that is one major discipline, spiritual discipline, that you need to develop or have it in your life if you want to see God bring about his victory and power and wonders in your life. But there are some other disciplines, spiritual disciplines, that I think are or can be very, very helpful or practically important. First one is, aside from the word of God, is prayer. Prayer is an essential spiritual practice for us to develop in our lives. Praying to God, worshiping him through prayer, asking our petitions to him, confessing our sins to him, praying intercessory prayers for other people. Prayer is a spiritual discipline that helps us to become more committed to God and sanctified unto him, consecrated to him. Another one that is, you know, a often overlooked Spiritual practice in our culture is fasting. Fasting from food, fasting from, yeah, I don't know, social media, fasting from the news, fasting from whatever it may be that you fast from. Fasting from food is the general one that people think about. But fasting breaks the attachment and the strength of our flesh. 
You know, maybe you've experienced, I certainly have in my life, that there are certain times where our appetites, maybe around the holidays, your appetites because of all the food you're consuming, it's like your appetite begins to dominate and direct you. It like overcomes your will. You don't have the self-control or the will to say no to that second helping of, you know, cheesecake or whatever it may be. Why? Because your appetite is directing you. And you are not walking by faith and you are not walking by the Spirit. So how do you sanctify yourself so that you can walk by faith in that way and walk by the Spirit and maybe have control, self-control over those appetites? Well, fasting is one of the things. It breaks the attachment and the strength of our flesh. It quiet and stills, quiets and stills our flesh so that we can maybe more clearly be receptive to or hear the prompting of the Spirit of God, respond to His prompting. So spiritual discipline of scripture study and reading and memorization and meditation, the scriptural discipline or spiritual discipline of prayer, the spiritual discipline of fasting, these things help to develop a, a more sanctified life. Another one, also not something that we see all, all that much in our culture is silence and solitude. That is waiting upon the Lord, spending time in quiet solitude with the Lord, maybe going on a hike or a walk out into the wilderness a little bit for an afternoon and just spending time in sol silence and solitude and, you know, putting this little device on do not disturb or maybe even turning it off. Silence and solitude are incredibly and increasingly difficult for us in the Western world. We're constantly being bombarded by notifications and information and all kinds of stuff. It's so hard for us to just be in silence and sol solitude. But silence and solitude and prayer and fasting and developing a habit of the Word of God, all of these things work towards our sanctification. These things are helpful disciplines to develop in our lives. Now, sanctification is a work of the Spirit. He is working in us to will and to do His good pleasure, but He also calls us to work out our salvation, our sanctification, which requires effort on our part. My favorite passage in all of the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do His good pleasure. And what is the result when we entrust ourselves to God and we follow Him by faith, in sanctified obedience. What happens when we begin to do that? Like the children of Israel here in this passage, they're going to follow God faithfully at a distance, wherever the ark goes, they're going to follow and they're going to be watching where God's going and seeing what he does. They're going to sanctify themselves, commit their way over to the Lord. What is the outcome? Joshua chapter three, verse six. Then Joshua spoke to the priest saying, take up the ark of the covenant and cross over before the people. And so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, not to spy out the land, but to do something even better. 
And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the, Lord, of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off and the waters that come down from upstream, they shall stand as a heap, they'll be dammed up. And so it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people and with a half mile gap between them and it. And as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, the feet of the priests who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of the harvest. This is at the end of the barley harvest in the, in the early spring. That the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zeratan. So the waters that went down into the sea of Arba or the salt sea failed and were cut off and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. What was it that happened after Israel spent a few days preparing to go to the Jordan to cross over? What was it that happened as they left the Acacia Grove and came to the edge of the Jordan River and they sanctified themselves and they prepared themselves to see God move and act? As they followed God faithfully, following the ark towards the Jordan River, as soon as the priests who were carrying it, their feet touched the water, the waters divided. What is that obstacle that is before you that seems like it is impassable, just like the Red Sea before or like when the children of Israel in the wilderness didn't have food or water or they had venomous snakes or whatever it is, that obstacle that seems impassable as they followed God by faith, they followed him at a distance waiting to see where he would go and they consecrated themselves, committed themselves to the Lord. They saw God move mightily and he opened up that obstacle and made a way for them to walk through it. Now that does not mean that they will not have difficulty and more obstacles and battles that are going to come in the future. We're going to see all of that as we continue in the book of Joshua. But God opened a way and they crossed over on dry ground. And what is this, the point of this for, for you and for me? I am thoroughly convinced that God wants to take you and I into a greater experience of his promised blessing of victory and rest. God wants you and I to enter into the fullness of his abundant life. Jesus said, the thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. So God wants you and me to move into the fullness of his abundant life. He wants us to enjoy the greatness of his blessing and his goodness. All of his promise, and blessing. It is ours by inheritance in Christ. In the same way that God's promised blessing was Israel's by inheritance in the land. The blessings were in the land. The blessings for you are in Christ. The abundant life is in him. But they could not take possession of all that was theirs by inheritance in the land until they, they crossed the Jordan and stepped into the land. Now for you and me, all the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. All of God's promises await you in Christ, but you have to step into those things and take possession of those things. And God wants to bring glory to himself through you and through me. And one of the ways that he brings glory to himself through us 
is as he fulfills all of his promise and blessing in our lives, bringing the fullness of his greatness into our lives. And, and when I think about that, my, my, my prayer is, oh Lord, do it. Do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think through us, your people. In, in this place, wherever God has you, to his glory. Now, one final note. I can't, I can't finish this chapter without pointing this out and addressing it. In, in Joshua chapter 3, eight times God refers to Israel, or Joshua refers to Israel in this passage as the people. Eight times, the people, the people, the people, the people. And this is a very obscure thing, but I think it's worth highlighting and pointing out. Seven of the eight times, the word that is translated people is the Hebrew word am. But the final time, the eighth time, in the very last verse, then the priest, verse 17, then the priest who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people, very last time people is used, eight times the word people shows up. This is the eighth time. The previous seven times is the Hebrew word om. This very last time is the Hebrew word goy. Why the change? What is happening? If you have a new American Standard Bible, then the word there for people in verse 17 is not translated people, it's translated nation. So eight times we see people, 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 until the very last time it's people, but it's actually nation. And why the change? Why is this going on? They, they move from being just a people, if you will, to being a nation only when they entered into the fullness of possessing the land. Note that again. They become a nation and not just a people when they came into the land. What, how, how is that and what's this all about? I believe it is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that was given some four centuries before this. God called Abraham the father of the Jewish people and he called a person to a place. He called Abraham and his descendants to the place, the promised land. And he says to Abraham when he calls him, he says, get out of your country and from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you, the land of Canaan, and I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. What word is that word nation? It's the same word, the word goy that we find here in this passage. So the people of Israel were a people. It says seven times, om, 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 om. People, 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 people here in this passage in Joshua chapter three. And then the very last time after we are going through this passage, it says now that they are a nation, a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. He said, I will make you a great nation if you come and follow me and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I'll bless him who blesses you and curse him who curses you and in you all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So why is this important? Final point and I'll end here. We only fully become what God intends us to be when we step into the fullness of his blessing. We only fully become what God intends us to be when we step into the fullness of his blessing. So if you're a Christian, you're not fulfilling the fullness of your purpose until you step into the fullness of his blessing. Every person is incomplete until they are in Christ. So 
the children of Israel, they step into the promised land and immediately they become the nation that God had promised that they would be. And why? Why is he calling them, this people, to be in the land? Ultimately, it is to bring about the blessing for all peoples. But you only fully realize the fullness of God's blessing when you step into Christ. And so, God, would you fulfill that in us, draw us into the place where we step in by faith, following you at a distance so we don't get out ahead of you, so we know where to go and we can see you work and to understand your ways. God, do that great work. Father God, I pray that you'd work in us, your church, continue directing us, leading us, empowering us to step into the fullness of all that you have for us. And Lord, that you would do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think as you have great things for us, your people, to do. God, do a greater work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.